Hello, everyone, and welcome back once again to the Intervals Pod. We are a public humanities initiative of the Organization of American Historians, and I am here on behalf of the OAH Committee on Marketing and Communications. My name is Christopher Brick, and I'm your host. I wanted to uh, just say a quick word about our guest lecturer today, who's joining us from the uh, Department of History and Art History at uh, George Mason University, where he's currently visiting scholar affiliated with both departments. His talk, Gerard's talk, The Origins of Aerobiology and Airborne Disease Research in the United States, tracks a 25-year period of time, during which period public health experts and the military became increasingly connected and intertwined in the project of aerobiological research. Uh, Gerard's Research focuses on the work of William Firth Wells of the University of Pennsylvania Medical School, who discovered droplet nuclei in 1934 and who was central to the evolution of aerobiology during this time period. And so this is a bit on the science-heavy side. Uh, And so for those of you who have a listening ear for that, I think you'll enjoy this episode, as did I. And with that, I turn it over to Gerard Fitzgerald on the origins of aerobiology and airborne disease research in the United States, 1930 to 1955. Turn on the light. William Firth Wells, Aerobiology and the Evolution of Airborne Infection Research in the United States, 1930 to 1965. In these early winter months of 2021, we're living in the age of the COVID-19 pandemic. As I record this podcast, many of the world's leading biomedical scientists, epidemiologists, biophysicists, and public health experts are focused on understanding and hopefully containing the spread of the various strains of this deadly and highly infectious airborne virus. While most people have given little thought to airborne infection until the onset of this global outbreak, airborne disease study and airborne disease containment protocols and technologies are not a 21st century invention. Serious scientific research on the phenomenon of airborne disease and airborne infection was an exciting, if little-known part of public health research in the United States beginning in the 1930s, with the creation of a new biological research field called air microbiology, better known today as aerobiology. Much of the research being carried out today by the world's leading scientists is based in part upon decades of early research by an older generation of airborne disease specialists. In my brief talk today, I'll open a window into the work of one, one scientist in particular, a man whose research began in the 1930s and whose career overlapped with many other leaders in the field. By following his work, we will meet others who helped define and drive this important public health research. In addition, we will see the impact of militarization on public health brought on by World War II. Finally, we will see historical links between biomedical and public health research conducted in the 1930s and 40s, and similar research being conducted today. A useful place to begin is the January 23, 1937 issue of Collier's Magazine. That issue contained a short feature entitled, Turn on the Light, an overview of the biomedical research of Professor William Firth Wells. At that time, Wells was an assistant professor at the Harvard School of Public Health. He was studying the air we breathe for evidence of infection and disease. Wells, a public health engineer, spent the majority of his academic career at the Laboratory for the Study of Airborne Infection at the University of Pennsylvania Medical School. Wells was trained as a sanitary engineer in the years between 1906 and 1910 at MIT, where he was also part of a special joint MIT-Harvard sanitary engineering program. His classroom and laboratory studies at the beginning of the last century exposed him to the cutting-edge research of his day, work that focused primarily on water-based purification systems 
for urban and rural public health. Wells' research in the magazine article showed his increasingly sophisticated approaches to studying and trying to contain the spread of airborne infection through the use of ultraviolet light. The Collier's article, written by J.D. Radcliffe, wittily encapsulate Wells' laboratory work to elucidate and contain airborne disease through a jury-rigged sneezing machine, used in combination with a new form of an experimental lamp which emitted UV radiation, an approach extending and expanding upon the early research of late 19th century German bacteriologist and hygienist Karl Fluge. Fluge had studied the biophysics and aerodynamics and possible infectious nature of airborne droplets. Written in a positive and jazzy poitois of the time, the Collier's article succinctly captures the spirit and culture of technological optimism that drove much of the air, American air microbiology research in the years prior to the outbreak of World War II. The Collier's article begins with a German phrase for now sneeze, recreating the earlier experimental research methods of Fluge. In his laboratory, Fluge had studied airborne infection by instructing volunteers to sneeze on glass slides, which had been lined with a sterile gelatin that could later be incubated and studied to search for infectious microorganisms. In the course of his work, Fluge plotted the downward parabolic airborne flight path of those droplets of water released by the human nose during a sneeze. According to Fluge's meticulous research, larger and heavier droplets fell to the ground quickly due to gravitational forces. However, questions remained about the existence of lighter, smaller droplets that might drift on currents of air much farther than their larger cousins. Wells was especially interested in these lighter dried particles, and he began publishing papers in 1934 on the differences between large and small droplets, the latter of which he christened droplet nuclei. Wells' research was focused on not only understanding the dynamics of the spread of airborne disease, but also in creating the technological means to control or spread infectious airborne bacteria and viruses. Like many of his colleagues, Wells might be described in part as an optimist. He believed that if successful, his work and that of his various academic and corporate colleagues might well create a world where airborne infection was limited, was no longer a major medical or public health concern. This American vision of a future free from airborne disease and infection implied in the Collier's article. A future made possible through direct and skillful technological intervention was, of course, never fully realized. Nevertheless, it reflects the vision of a diverse and focused group of interdisciplinary practitioners at a specific moment in American history, a transitional period that moved away from the pessimism of the Great Depression while simultaneously having this optimism only slightly checked initially by the possibility, however remote, of a return to global war. This scientific and technological optimism perhaps reached its zenith at the Westinghouse Pavilion at the 1939 New York World's Fair. There, at the Sterilamp display, which featured a new UV lamp system capable of killing airborne microbes, which was created by Westinghouse physicist Harvey C. Rentschler, Westinghouse promoted a future of germ-free living for all those willing and able to install this technological marvel in their homes and schools and hospitals or in factories. The commercial viability of the sterile lamp would, however, prove to be fleeting. Wartime research conducted at Westinghouse would provide a large catch of epidemiological data that would divide the medical and engineering communities in the early post-war years. In fact, by war's end, the militarization of aerobiology had the unforeseen consequence of providing the theoretical and instrumental means to produce a new weapon of mass destruction, the airborne biological weapon. That is a story for another day. The onset of World War II greatly complicated the trajectory of research in aerobiology, which is especially interesting considering the changing nature of evolving research programs at that time. Much like other scientific fields such as meteorology, oceanography, or nuclear physics, World War II decisively influenced research carried out in aerobiology, resulting in both positive and negative impacts on the growth, direction, and success of the field. 
The ideological commitment to technological and scientific progress that drove many American aerobiological researchers in the late interwar period helped them find a new niche in the increasingly militarized research culture brought about by the war. Expanded funding opportunities from various governmental sources, and perhaps more importantly, the wartime emergency that made large numbers of military human test subjects available provided academic and industrial researchers with the economic and material resources that accelerated and expanded the growth and depth of research on both airborne disease and containment control and control containment technologies. Five years after Turn on the Light was published in Collier's, and nine months after the nation entered World War II, a select group of more than 50 scientists, engineers, physicians, and public health practitioners, including William Firth Wells and his wife Mildred, who was a Johns Hopkins trained epidemiologist, traveled to Chicago for the first major symposium on aerobiology in the United States in late September 1942. Held at a meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the symposium was sponsored in part to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the founding of the University of Chicago. Organized by both the Committee on Aerobiology of the National Research Council and the Section on Medical Sciences of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the symposium was led by Dr. Elvin C. Stackman, a professor in the Department of Plant Pathology and Botany at the University of Minnesota, and by Dr. Stuart Mudd, Wells' colleague and boss in the Department of Bacteriology at the University of Pennsylvania Medical School. At the time of this meeting, airborne infection research in the late 1930s grew out of earlier success in two seemingly unrelated public health research programs. First, bacteriologists and sanitary engineers had conducted successful research to control the outbreak of disease and contaminated water supplies during the late 19th century. This research paradigm guided much of the early research of Wells and his fellow MIT classmates. Second, studies begun in the 1920s on inhaled materials spurred increasing epidemiological and instrumental sophistication on the part of public health officials in their search for inorganic and organic non-living airborne matter in workers' lungs, such as silica and granite. Research on the public health implications of the inhalation of particulate matter, in addition to the dangers presented by diseases such as tuberculosis, accelerated interest in maladies associated with the lungs and breathing. This research was carried out in a host of academic, industrial, and government laboratories. In the preceding decade, organizations such as the American Public Health Association in 1936, the National Academy of Sciences, National Research Council in 1937, and the American Society for Heating and Ventilating Engineers in 1940, set up research committees to coordinate and investigate the relationship between airborne bacteria and airborne infection. Scientists sought to limit airborne infection by integrating engineering technologies, including ultraviolet light, air conditioning, chemical germicides, and mechanical barriers in hospitals, schools, orphanages, factories, and military barracks. In the 10 or more years since aerobiology researchers started to publish their work, exchange findings, and communicate with like-minded investigators, the field had split in half between those, like Stackman, who worked on extramural aerobiology, which dealt primarily with agricultural questions, and those like Wells and Mudd, who focused on intramural aerobiology, a human disease-based approach focusing on the built environment. This division within the field uh, was reflected in the publication of the Proceedings of the Chicago Meeting. Published that same year, 1942, the volume simply entitled Aerobiology was divided into two sections. The first section, consisting of eight research papers focused on air-based life found in the atmosphere, um, examined the agricultural and ecosystem evolution and reflected the research interests of scientists like Professor Stackman. The destructive echo of the Dust Bowl drove many of these investigations, especially at research universities in the Middle West. These papers on the biology of the atmosphere dealt with studies of insect populations, 
plant pathogens, fungi, spores, and pollens. Any and all forms of life, both plant and animal, that are born aloft by the air and are either deposited locally or transported over distances ranging up to hundreds and even thousands of miles. The second, much longer section, consisted of 29 papers on the topic of human infections within the built environment. This reflected the research carried out by scientists, physicians, and engineers like Wells and his pen colleague, Professor Mudd. Considering the ongoing pandemic, it is useful to examine in more detail what exactly Wells and his colleagues were looking at. These papers examined the problem of contagion by airborne infectious materials. The scientists investigated the expulsion of secretions from the mouth and nose in the acts of sneezing, coughing, and talking, the behavior, of air, the behavior and air of organisms of whatever origin. They studied airborne pathogenic organisms in operating rooms, in hospital wards, in nurseries for newborn infants, in classrooms, and finally even in the home. They examined the method of the spread of epidemics of children's diseases. In addition, they investigated methods for producing EV radiation and studied its bacteriocidal clinical and physiological effects, another means of providing barriers to the spread of infection. I should note, there were two important individuals who were unable to attend the Chicago meeting for vastly different reasons, though their work was extremely important in providing data and generating interest in funding aerobiology during the 1930s. The first was plant mycologist Fred Meyer. Meyer had died tragically in 1938 during a Pan-American Hawaiian clipper crash in the Pacific, a flight lost with no survivors having gone down somewhere near Guam. Meyer was on his way across the Pacific on a mission from the National Science Foundation, National Research Council, to scout sites for future aerobiological investigations on a planetary scale. At the time of his death, he was simultaneously a Harvard graduate student, a USDA plant pathologist, and a ranking National Research Council member dealing with the topic and problem of aerobiology. Under Fred Meyer's guidance, the National Academy of Sciences National Research Council on Aerobiology sought to create a centralized laboratory to promote and coordinate research. This little-fated trip to the Pacific was the first step in organizing a series of aerobiological tests and exper experimental monitoring stations across the globe to track the movement of pollen in various airborne microorganisms. The second person who was not in attendance was a research associate of Meyer, one Charles Lindbergh. Charles Lindbergh was not only the most famous aviator in the world at the time, he was arguably one of the most famous people in the Western world period. Lindbergh had conducted path-breaking exploratory fieldwork at altitude across the world, taking airborne samples in collaboration with Meyer. This followed Lindbergh's earlier work in biomedical engineering at the Rockefeller Institute with Nobel laureate Alexis Carroll. Lindbergh's surprising interest in the biological sciences, his engineering acumen, and perhaps most importantly, his unique access to high-performance military aircraft of all types gave microbiologists and plant pathologists the technological means to sample airborne microbes at high altitudes over large geographical expanses and return them safely to Earth for scientific analysis. Lindbergh moved away from aerobiology after Meyer's untimely death. Sadly, he would quickly evolve into one of the most infamous and controversial people on the American political stage. However, in years before he was famous for his isolationist, racist, and fascist proclivities, Lindbergh assisted and published with Meyer in aerobiology and did some very useful scientific prospecting. Much like William Firth Wells, Fred Meyer struggled to build various disciplinary boundaries, uh, to, bridge various, to bridge various disciplinary boundaries while building a new biological subfield during the 1930s, a difficult task even when bringing together like-minded researchers from different scientific, medical, and engineering backgrounds. This is similar in many ways to the multifaceted attack on the COVID-19 virus today, 
by my, by, by medical scientists, engineers, virologists, and epidemiologists. The aerobiologists interested in public health aspects of airborne infection and control during this earlier time period worked both across and through disciplinary boundaries to frame and solve the complex research issues of the day. Public health is by definition a multidisciplinary field and has been recognized as such, or at least encouraged to be so, since the days when William Firth Wells was an undergraduate sanitary engineering major at MIT. Understanding the multidisciplinary nature of the field of aerobiology, which employed researchers from science, medicine, and engineering, provides useful historical insights into the par parallel evolution of public health research itself. On September 7, 1910, Dr. William T. Sedgwick, professor of biology at MIT, read a paper entitled On the Proper Correlation of Physicians, Engineers, and Other Specialists in Public Health Work at the 38th Annual Meeting of the American Public Health Association held that year in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Sedgwick was one of the foremost public health practitioners in the nation. He was also a firm advocate of a multidisciplinary approach to the field. Cedric saw the field as not only involving physicians, biologists, chemists, and engineers, but also including architects, physicists, geologists, and any other specialist who might bring expertise to a problem that can impact the health and well-being of human populations. Wells, a student and disciple of Cedric, had graduated from MIT earlier that same spring and quickly embarked on a life of laboratory and field-based public health research. While Wells embraced a multidisciplinary approach to framing and studying public health problems in a manner similar to Cedric, he moved beyond studying water-based etiology, the anchor of the Cedric and MIT's departmental research, and instead focused on the possibility of airborne-based disease sources. Within 20 years, Wells emerged as one of the earliest, most successful American practitioners in aerobiology, the science and technology of aeromicrobiology. Wells' training as an engineer at MIT and Harvard, in addition to his mentorship under biologist and public health researcher William T. Cedric, shaped his laboratory-based research program which ultimately led to his identification of droplet nuclei in 1934. Wells' approach to airborne disease was predicated on his earlier success as a sanitary engineer interested in water-based disease ideology. This engineering approach led Wells to create an instrument he called the air centrifuge that capture, isolate, and identify the possible sources of airborne infection. As a result of his earlier work with the air centrifuge and the subsequent discovery of droplet nuclei, Wells' research became useful to numerous practitioners within this new field. After a successful invention and deployment of the air centrifuge, Wells began experimenting with UV lamps as a means to probe the dynamics of airborne infection movement and also as a possible instrumental means to curb uh, their existence. At the same time, Wells was working on his understanding of the spread of infectious airborne droplets and bacteria and their possible elimination through the use of ultraviolet radiation. Dr. Harvey C. Rentschler, the lead physicist at the Westinghouse Lamp Research Laboratory in Bloomfield, New Jersey, was working on a commercially viable ultraviolet lamp to place in public spaces to accomplish many of the same goals as Wells. A Princeton and John Hopkins trained physicist, Rentschler had left an associate professorship in physics at the University of Missouri to lead the research program at Westinghouse's lamp division from 1917 until 1947. Ultraviolet lamps were one of the key technological tools necessary to study and control airborne bacteria and viruses. While such instrumentation was crucial, for Wells' research program, the large-scale production of such UV lamps was well beyond the capabilities of his laboratory. The Westinghouse sterile lamp was introduced with great fanfare at the Westinghouse Pavilion at the 1939 World's Fair in New York City. Ensconced within a 46,000-square-foot pavilion resembling the Greek letter Omega, Westinghouse presented audiences with a carefully constructed corporate image 
of progressive scientific and technological achievement. Through the whimsical guise of cigarette-smoking robots, giant talking germs, and a 70-foot swinging singing tower of light, the results of Westinghouse research and development uh, delighted audiences from around the world. The Sterlamp was introduced to audiences with both an animated movie and a live demonstration. The film, entitled The Bugaboo of Bugville, was a whimsical military drama that pitted the heroic Sterlamp against an army of disease-bearing microbes led by, led by malaria, scarlet fever, strep, and cold. At the film's conclusion, a death ray, in the form of light from the Sterilamp, destroys and eviscerates the entire Bug Bill army and saves mankind from the dangers of various infectious diseases. The film was followed by a live demonstration in which Westinghouse microprojectors magnified the world contained within a small petri dish of pond water to demonstrate the possibilities of UV radiation. The Sterilamp was then turned on and the bacteria on screen relieved at least little dose of ultraviolet radiation. Sound effects and lightning in the studio heightened the effect, which in many ways is more theatrical than scientific. But the demonstration nevertheless conveyed to the assembled international audiences that a powerful new public health technology was available from the fine people at the Westinghouse Corporation. Like many of the Westinghouse ex exhibitions at the World's Fair, the Sterilamp demonstration was informative, yet it relied on the drama of the event to promote interest in science and technology. In terms of actual science, um, the biophysical utility of the Sterilamp in containing airborne infection was still somewhat of a puzzle to the physicists and microbiologists in the Westinghouse Lamp Division in 1939. The Sterilamp had been marketed in 1936 as an experimental instrument. At the time of the instrument's uh, introduction at the World's Fair, despite all the hype, many questions remained about the instrument's, the instrument's potential, both, as a, both for markets for being sold and for possible health risks to human beings. Between 1936 and 1942, Rentschler expanded the Westinghouse Lamp Division research programs to include bacteriologists, biochemists, and biophysicists to conduct experiments to test the limits and utility of the Sterilamp. The development of the Westinghouse Mercury UV lamp was based on what one could call an engineering model of disease rather than an epidemiological one. Rentschler and his associates at Westinghouse determined their success by eliminating bacteria from experimental spaces in the built environment rather than using an epidemiological model that linked the lamps to eliminating or reducing the spread of contagious diseases, an approach used by medical infectious disease specialists. Westinghouse researchers would have needed to conduct large-scale epidemiological studies on human test subjects to fully probe the technical and public health limitations of the sterile lamp, something that was far beyond the scope of their traditional engineering-based research program. This was a type of research that had never been done before in the history of the company. World War II would provide Westinghouse with a unique opportunity. American entry into World War II provided Westinghouse with a large-scale testing program that probed not only the limits of the bacterial radiation technology, but also provided, at least in theory, the experimental evidence for the greater underlying medical phenomenon involving the etiology and dynamics of airborne respiratory disease. The massive mobilization of manpower in the United States during the Second World War involved the passage of large numbers of recruits through military training centers, all of whom were potential candidates for spreading or contacting infection. These training centers offered a particularly unique and potentially useful site for experimentation for a number of reasons. The large number of potential subjects, the turnover of these subjects on a regular schedule of six weeks, the immediate availability of subject medical records, the ability for continuous monitoring control of subject movements, the possibility of immediate and regulated on-site medical care if needed, 
and perhaps most importantly, active participation by research subjects, regardless of their interest, willingness, or legal rights, offered researchers an ideal site for study. Which brings us to research project number X231. X231 was a joint United States Navy, National Institutes of Health, Westinghouse, and General Electric field trial that was held between 1943 and 1944. X231 was part of a much larger series of studies being conducted across the country at various military facilities by both the Army Epidemiological Board and the Department of the Navy to study the possible effectiveness of various technologies to eliminate or at least contain the outbreak of, of infection using ultraviolet radiation, chemical germicides, and oils within the built environment. X-231 was carried out at Camp Sampson, a United States Navy training facility in upstate New York. Given unfettered access to a large number of human subjects in the form of naval recruits to study the prevention of airborne disease in barracks, X-231 provides a useful case study for understanding research on UV radiation and the containment technologies for airborne respiratory disease. The military environs also skirted various procedural questions that would trouble bioethicists today. X-231 project investigators noted that, quote, the semi-isolated military communities such as Camp Sampson offer advantages for controlled epidemiological studies, which are not to be found in most civilian groups, unquote. To make a long story short, X-231 produced a great deal of epidemiological data on the relationship between UV radiation and airborne bacteria. It, it also produced a wealth of data on the apparent rate of illness between those naval recruits who lived in barracks which contained various UV lamp configurations, barracks where disease spread should, should in theory be less severe, compared with data of those recruits who lived in barracks that were free of UV lamps. The interpretation of that data, however, differed greatly among engineers who thought the lamps were useful, and epidemiologists who felt the utility of lamps were problematic because of the complexity of understanding the intricacies of airborne disease transmission, something they thought was still beyond the grasp of biomedicine, even with these new large-scale studies. This interpretation was codified in a 1947 American Public Health Association committee report. This report doomed the commercial viability of the UV-based containment technologies and forced Westinghouse to focus on smaller and often, another, uh, often highly specialized niche market in medicine and industry in the post-war period. The 1947 American Public Health Committee concluded the following, quote, Conclusive evidence is not available at present that the airborne mode of transmission of infection is predominant for any particular disease. There is need for more precise knowledge regarding the epidemiology of acute infectious diseases in crowded populations, unquote. By concluding that the airborne mode of transmission of infection did not predominate for any particular disease, the American Public Health Association Committee raised serious questions about the public health phenomenon the sterile lamp was designed to contain in the first place. Although Westinghouse engineers and scientists understood the sterile lamp could destroy airborne bacteria, the more significant and still unsubstantiated causal relationship between airborne bacteria and airborne respiratory disease and infection limited the claims researchers could make for their technology. Westinghouse would pivot quickly and move from a marketing campaign urging a sterile lamp in every American home not to mention supermarket, bus station, bowling alley, school, and baseball stadium, to a more limited industrial market. The field of airborne disease would continue to attack the biophysics of airborne transmission, but it would not be until the 1960s and 1970s that researchers would begin to reach some form of consensus. Even then, the complexity of understanding airborne disease transmission remained an extremely difficult research pursuit involving public health specialists, engineers, biomedical scientists, and epidemiologists. 
I was struck last year uh, while watching a COVID-19 research meeting sponsored jointly by the National Academy of Sciences, Medicine, and Engineering on the current complexity of the phenomenon today, including uh, some nomenclature issues, which are similar to things that happened in the 1930s and 40s, um, and the difficulties of working on a complex interdisciplinary research problem. Luckily for the world, airborne disease researchers have made significant progress, but the work remains difficult. Let me conclude by noting that one of the most significant contributions to airborne disease research was carried out by William Firth Wells and his colleague, Dr. Edward Riley, in the early 1960s, after Wells moved to the Bloomberg School of Public Health at the Johns Hopkins University Medical Center. Wells' last research project was a landmark study proving the airborne mode of transmission of tuberculosis. Although he served with distinction during the Great War as a public health and sanitary officer, Wells set out World War II in a military capacity, unlike many other aerobiologists working on public health research problems. Working with his wife, Mildred, at the Laboratory for the Study of Airborne Infection at the University of Pennsylvania Medical School's Henry Phipps Institute, Wells conducted a controversial experiment dealing with measles and the ultraviolet radiation of primary schools in the Philadelphia suburbs in 1942. A large measles outbreak in the control school, which should not have a UV system, contrasted sharply with those schools with both an operational UV system and correspondingly few to no cases of measles during the outbreak. This study is historiographically intriguing because acceptance of the utility of these UV radiation containment systems and air disinfection protocols as a means to check airborne infection was difficult for those in the medical community who did not already accept the airborne transmission of measles. Much like the later interpretation of the X231 data, the medical community was not convinced that the mode of airborne transmission of viruses and bacteria was understood, and thus not, it could not be successfully contained or controlled. The ambivalent reception by the greater medical community of the 1942 Wells study stands in stark contrast to Wells' final laboratory investigation, which began in 1955 on the dynamics of the airborne spread of tuberculosis. This final set of experiments, carried out with his colleague Dr. Riley, were conducted in a special experimental ward at the Veterans Administration Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland. This experiment, this experiment employed guinea pigs in lieu of human subjects, housed in a special experimental apparatus linked to the ward's ventilation system to elucidate the airborne transmission of tuberculosis. Tragically, Wells died during the end of the study, and when the study was completed, his name did not appear on the paper that would further have cemented his scientific legacy in the field of intramural aerobiology and airborne disease studies. That said, William Firth Wells is today held in the highest regard by the current generation of airborne disease researchers, who continue to cite his earlier work and follow in his legacy. Professor Wells also provided public health historians such as myself a rich and rewarding research subject whose career opens a window into the complex and fascinating history of modern public health and biomedical research across the last century. Now, wasn't that just tremendous? So to the Q&A. And here it is. Gerard Fitzgerald, welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here. I'm very excited to talk about public health today, not a topic that gets a lot of uh, interest by historians, unless there's a public health crisis like we're having right now. So why was this aerobiology practice important for public health in the 1930s? And uh, why was the makeup of the field composed of such an interdisciplinary mix of researchers from medicine, engineering, and science? Airborne disease is a pretty complex biomedical phenomenon. I was struck listening to a recent, uh, back in October, the National Academy of Sciences is doing a series of, of uh, lectures and symposia on, on COVID and the coronavirus. And I was really struck by the fact that right now, 
you have a mix of scientists, engineers, and public health people. They're very similar to people I'm studying in the 1930s and 40s. They're asking the same types of questions and sort of having some of the same um, problems framing the question of how to solve the problem. Um, and there were, there were questions about nomenclature. Um, but, but it's interesting. Airborne disease involves is this very complex. You have to basically frame the problem medically. Um, there's a biological aspect to it, which involves science. And then you basically, there's an engineering aspect to it, too. So you basically want to develop things like infrastructure and instruments to sort of allow you to either understand something or contain things. And the reason I talked about both Wells and Rentschler was I wanted to show that you both had laboratory-based people that were, on the one hand, framing the problem at the University of Pennsylvania, and then the people at Westinghouse were actually building instruments. Like right now during COVID, we're finding out we need to scale things up like on a wartime basis. We need vials. We need glass or vials to basically put the vaccine in. We need to make vaccine. Um, there's an infrastructure aspect to public health, which, which people find sort of boring. Um, but it's actually very, it's very crucial to, to basically people um, being healthy. Fort Melosi wrote, wrote a great book uh, called The Sanitary City. That's what it's called. And it basically traces uh, public health infrastructure from the colonial period to the 20th century. And, and, and I joke with people, public health isn't something people are intrigued about until it's missing. And then people get very excited about it. Like right now, people want a vaccine. Um, but all of the things leading up to airborne disease to get a vaccine is you have to identify the phenomenon. And William Firth Wells was one of the people who and was foundational for basically framing the questions and building instrumentation to sort of try to solve the problem. But the problem was so complex that it really didn't get solved till almost till his death, actually. Uh, Wells is also an interesting guy because he was he graduated from MIT from a joint MIT Harvard program in 1910, and he's trained by sort of 19th century public health foundational people. And sort of Wells is sort of a transitional figure, and he bridges sort of the 19th century into, into the 20th century. He's a very interesting guy to look at. Yeah, and you, uh, you know, we, we get to know him a bit in the talk that you gave. Yeah, some uh, of the people at the National Academy were, were actually citing Wells's paper on, on an October podcast that I listened to. They were, they were citing the 34 paper on, on droplet nuclei. Um, one of the people that Wells studies with is, is Charles V. Chapin. Well, along with Cedric is probably the, they're the two most important sort of public health people in the United States. In 1910, Chapin writes a, a foundational book, a really important book called The Sources and Modes of Infection. And it, he has a chapter on airborne disease, and he basically says that airborne disease doesn't really, ex doesn't really exist because we can't find a way to explain it phenomenologically. So they basically think possibly dust particles may infect people, but, but there's a real limit with, with respect to like how far something can move. And something Wells was fascinated by looking at Fluby's work was, can something float around in the air for a long time? And according to what was uh, the accepted practice in 1910, people just didn't think you could infect someone at a distance of more than a couple of feet. Did not, didn't disbelieve that. He just wanted to know if that was actually true. So he started basically trying to study microbes in the air, and then things got really complicated. Um, but they were sort of asking the same things earlier. There was a lot of discussion during the early part of last spring about whether COVID was airborne. And people talked a lot about droplets for the first time. And I, I was really interested because they were talking about droplets and, and gaseous diffusion models in the same way people were talking about in the 30s. But right now, the science and the technology instrumentation is, is a lot more advanced. But um, they're sort of taking his research and taking it down another level to, to solve some other level of problem. So it's still with us. Still I mean, with, it's yeah. almost a hundred years yes. later, and I mean, there's a so there's a cumulative aspect to what you're describing that um, we need to connect back to this moment. And obviously, I mean, one of the premises of this whole series is that uh, these 
responses and the technologies we're able to use to respond to them are themselves historically contingent and shaped by uh, uh, choices that individual actors facing and confronting public health emergencies in the past have made. And, and back then, uh, in the 1920s, the National Academy of Sciences had a, had a committee called Borderland Science. What they were trying to do is to get people to think outside the box and think about things like oceanography and what became aerobiology. And what was interesting about that back then, it's interesting today, is when you get trained in a specific field like history or sociology or, say, biophysics or engineering or medicine, you, you basically learn to look at the world a certain way and you, you have a different kind of, you have a specific kind of vocabulary. But even when people are brought together to work on the same problem and, and they sort of view things the same way. Right. And back then you had engineers, mm. biologists, microbiologists, public health people, physicians looking at this problem of airborne disease. They all sort of come at it in a, in a slightly different way. So when they're trying to reach consensus, it gets kind of difficult. And I was intrigued looking at Wells as, as someone who basically does this for the life of his career, but he's trained as an engineer, but he spends his entire working life in medical schools at the University of Pennsylvania and Johns Hopkins. You don't normally think anymore of engineers working in medical schools. He's like one of the first generations of people to do that because you, you need basically the tools of engineering to sort of solve part of this problem, which is also the guys at Westinghouse are involved because you need to scale the instrumentation. So um, it's very interesting to me how people are trying to reach consensus and frame problems and solve problems. And this is a very, very complex problem. So it's very interesting to me to watch how people um, work through these kinds of things. And there's a lot of um, historical uh, similarities between what's going on in, say, 1930 or 1942 and what's going on in 2021. So it's very interesting. To me. One of the things I find in reading the work of historians who aren't entrenched in the scientific uh, literature is that sci-tech or uh, uh, scientific innovation, technological innovation often shows up or is introduced in the, the narratives that we produce as something semi-exogenous. You know, it's kind of like, oh, well, the cotton gin came along and then therefore the South was transformed and, and so was the Southern labor economy. And and the 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 technological innovation itself is often sort of lacks contest is decontextualized is kind of presented as as this external intervention that that is disparate or separate from from the broader story in which it's embedded is it, could you respond to that a bit i mean is that something that your work is trying to unpack at all or is is that present in this story no, no it is it's something historians of technology have sort of always struggled with i'm um, going back to that when the field begins sort of in the 1970s people Sort of the cognitive is a nice example. People basically want this very sort of clear, almost binary explanation of like if you you invent you invent the internet, then like the world changes, or you basically you invent the vaccine and the world changes. And then the things are as people are seeing right now with with COVID, it's really complex what's going on. Um, there's there's multi dimensions to how things how these problems are solved. Um, and there's it, also I think a narrative where people um, and, and engineers and scientists I think have actually sort of bought into this narrative themselves where People, this light bulb moment where you're basically the person sitting on a, on a car bench and they discover something and then they, oh, that's how you invent the light bulb. And then you basically build one and, and everything changes. Um, as I try, as I show in my, in my book, uh, Westinghouse has some really interesting technology, which is sort of partially developed by Wells. But getting it, getting it to work in a laboratory is one thing. Getting it to work in your house is, is totally something different. Um, and then what that actually means, what it's actually, once you turn this light bulb on, it means different things to um, to doctors or housewives or scientists or 
um, other people, the politicians or economists. So it's, it's actually very, very complex, which is why the history of technology is a really cool field. Um, but I think people, um, I think non-specialists are, are sort of, have come to expect a really sort of simplistic narrative is that you basically, something gets invented and then X happens. And it's, um, the reason history is interesting is because X is always very complex, uh, what, what actually happens later. Um, and my guys that I say in my book, it takes an entire, almost like 50, 60, 70 years to get this to be, to be fully solved, actually. Um, an interesting example is, I mean, people won the Nobel Prize a couple of years ago for gravity waves. Well, gravity waves were, were basically suggested by Einstein um, in, in special relativity. It, it takes until the late 20th, early 21st century to build the technology to test it. So a lot of times, instrumentally, it's really hard to basically test certain theories. And, and this is sort of a, a really tough biomedical phenomenon to test, actually, and to solve. Your talk also transcends two periods that often are connected in the way that the American History Survey is, yes. is told and reported to students and uh, uh, social studies textbooks and the like, which is, you know, sort of New Deal, World War II. They're kind of, you know, Dr. New Deal, Dr. Win the War. You go that, from black and white uh, to the color from 1930 to 1940, the world changes. It's like the Wizard of Oz, actually. It's very distinct of change between 1930 and right. is it 1929 1929 we have talkies for the first yeah. time right mm -hmm. so audio tracks connected to film that you can hear and then by 1939 we do get uh color in cinema and uh right so which changes the way that people are able to interact with yeah. with technology uh what kinds of changes i mean there's so much social transformation that occurs across the space of the 1929 through 1945 period that um uh what changes do we see in the story you tell um well one thing i'll sort of just say funding actually i mean when i talk to students today students always assume you get funding from the government this is this is a time period where Scientific research is sort of changing from a philanthropic model. You get money from the, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Carnegie Foundation. They're getting money from the government for the first time. So just actually getting funding for stuff is changing, which means people have to define the work they're doing it in kind of a different way. Um, one of the other things that I talk about, it's the reason I brought in the World's Fair, was, was this concept of optimism. Um, the 1930s uh, were, were a you know, fairly serious, dark time in American history, but the scientists and engineers and physicians I'm looking at are really optimistic people. I'm, I'm often sort of surprised that they think they can solve this problem. Um, and they think they can solve it and make the world better, which is, I think, what um, good people in engineering and science and medicine try to do. Um, but the coming of the war, the war changes things. I mean, when get, getting back to the funding question, people aren't throwing a lot of money at air biology questions. The Dust Bowl, as I talk about briefly, changes a little bit of things. Some of the, there's two kinds of people studying aerobiology. There's public health people, which is what my most of my book's about. And I, I spent a little bit of time talking about the agricultural questions, which comes out of the Dust Bowl. Um, and just a general question of, of, of air microbiology is, it, are there basically things up in the atmosphere? Until the 1920s and 30s, um, you couldn't actually access anything. Uh, Louis Pasteur and John Tyndall, in Europe, um, when they wanted to do airborne studies, they would literally have to walk up a mountain with a test tube um, to basically get a sample of something. And the reason I bring in Charles Lindbergh is Charles Lindbergh has access to military aircraft. So for the first time, you can start to take airborne samples and start to think of beyond things of an ecosystem to look at global system. 
the people I'm looking at are looking at the built environment, which, which is much smaller. Um, but these two groups are actually talking to each other and they're working together. Um, and they're also sort of um, at odds with each other. But what this concept of optimism is interesting. The, the reason I, I find the 1939's World's Fair very intriguing is um, the, uh, the the Westinghouse display by the Sterlock is one of the only displays, in fact, might be the only display at the 39 World's Fair that actually deals with warfare at all. Um, America is basically into an optimistic, isolationist mindset at this point, at least a, a large majority of people are until Pearl Harbor. Since America's attitudes change between December 7th and December 8th rather dramatically. But, but the World's Fair is about the future, and it's intriguing that people are not seeing global war. I mean, the World's Fair begins on April 30th, 1939, and four months later, uh, Nazi Germany will invade Poland and the, and the world will change. Um, but the people I'm looking at it are seeing a world of like, um, sort of a Jetson view. I mean, pe- people find the world's very interesting from a, from a standpoint of studying modernity. Um, and they're talking about flying cars and, and, and cities and bubbles and things. And the Westinghouse people are certainly in that model. Um, but, but there's this interesting tension between this optimism that's there about trying to solve this, this really difficult phenomenological problem in biomedicine. And there's also optimism about can you really change, change the world? Um, which is reason, the other reason I, I talked about X through 31, because if you're trying to make the world better, um, you get into these human test subject studies, and that's really problematically ethically. So you get into this tension between the, the, the dark and the light. That's why I like, I like the term turn out the light, because it actually um, um, talks about things about light, the light itself to me is both, both scientific and actually ethical and moral, too, about what these people are trying to do, actually. It's not a, it's not a straight road to trying to solve this problem. So you basically are use, using human test subjects. Um, well, Wells does it actually too. So um, the 1930s, 1940s are really amazingly interesting part of American history. And, and my guys are sort of um, like many scientists, um, kind of walled off from the world too. Um, they're, they're paying attention to things, but but they're not paying attention to things. When, when stuff becomes militarized, uh, most of them jump on the bandwagon because a lot of funding floods in because the military is very interested in controlling um, outbreaks of disease among among troops and things. It does seem to me right now, compared to, say, 20 years ago, where the idea was particular that information technology was going to kind of yield all this uh, kind of democratic transformation that would remake everything. And of course, in many ways, it has remade quite a bit. Uh, but a lot of that optimism has shifted into pessimism, concern about surveillance, capitalism, big tech, uh, monopoly power at Amazon, Google, uh, Facebook. And when we talk about optimism, it seems like you're talking about a kind of social sort of sense that that, uh, these technologies can transform standards of living and outcomes for the better. was that present in the work that these scientists specifically are doing? Like, did they have some kind of social justice agenda that they were uh, pouring into this work? I haven't seen that. I'm talking about optimism. I think, I think I'm, I'll talk at one level about just they're optimistic about how they, they're, they're um, optimistic they can solve this problem, which, which in hindsight is actually very impressive because it's a very difficult problem to solve. Uh, most of the people I, I'm studying in my book don't talk about social justice questions the way we think about them today. I mean, I, would, I mean, in their papers that they leave behind, they don't talk about anything except the science, and I don't have access to um, some of the personal papers where people would talk about this. Um, but one, one of the um, 
uh, under underlying uh, foundational structural things about the history of technology is basically unintended consequences, which which we're living out with. I think people today think about that with respect to the internet. People thought if you go back and read the stuff in the sixties, um, the idea that you could have a phone and you can you could get all this information on your phone and learn everything you would think about the thing from a Star Trek standpoint, people would think, well, that's great. Everyone's going to be learning stuff. And then basically. Considering the current state of our nation, what happened on, on January 6th, um, information flow is more complicated. So um, it's not to take away from the people who invent these these technologies and, and these scientific instruments and um, their approach to things. But um, as history keeps telling us over and over again, things don't always turn out the way you want them to. And life is really complicated. And even if the science, you can actually sort of solve a scientific problem, whatever that may mean. Uh, whether that be we can um, basically try to curb the spread of airborne disease or invent the internet, um, how that's going to basically evolve is, is is very complicated. Actually, does the appearance of antibiotics in the war period, my understanding is antibiotics begin to become more conventionally available beginning in 1944, yep. right? Penicillin. Um, does that change? Does that the trajectory of this research at all moving forward because you're the you're, the bigger scope of your project takes us all the way into yeah. the 60s that's within, the, major, the major war time um, no, actually penicillin actually does make the project well after world war ii our, our interest in aerobiology tends to fade off and actually becomes it's actually pretty small before world war ii it gets kind of bigger in world and it becomes it goes back to a small group of practitioners what's ironic is when, when the sterilant market sort of collapses one of the few places that Westinghouse and General Electric can sell lamps to is to the pharmaceutical industry. So basically, one of the first, one of the only places you're actually seeing ultraviolet light activity is actually in the manufacture of early pharmaceuticals, which actually is undermining their market in, in a sort of strange way. Um, but 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 those are those are very separate um, research projects, and, and, and they're sort of like they're they're in parallel with each other, but they're also very separate. How much of the aerobiological research that you document in this story ends up becoming tied in any way, shape, or form to an agenda for what colloquially, I guess we would call biological warfare. Well, that's um, or, that's or very, the, very directly tied yeah. up. That's one section of my book, which I'm not talking about right now, but actually, yes, actually there, there's um, a person at Notre Dame called James Rainier, who actually works with Wells on a nursery in Chicago. Um, and he actually winds up going into the biological weapons research program. And after, after World War II, um, uh, this sort of global view of, aeros, of aerobiology and the atmosphere becomes part of the way people are, are trying to make biological weapons. It's not until like the late 60s and 70s people get some of this stuff to work, but um, there's definitely a darker side to the aerobiology getting militarized, actually. And that's actually trends. Uh, it's foundational for basically making airborne biologic weapons, unfortunately. And that's not something that Cedric or um, uh, Chapin or Wells um, would have envisioned. But as I said, you never quite know where these things are going to go, actually. Uh, you had mentioned, this, this brings me back to something you had mentioned earlier about the use of human test subjects and human experimentation. This is, I assume, occurring before there's real 
standardized kind of IRB procedures for the review of that sort of research. Uh, there's, as we know, I mean, there's there's experiments getting conducted at Tuskegee. There's uh, stuff going on in Central America and Europe. I mean, this is happening in a variety of different settings in really, really like, problematic ways um, uh, and dehumanizing ways. What, how does it look in, in, with respect to the, the research that is going on? I have, I have two chapters to deal with World War II. One is the, the program that's, that's, uh, that I talked about, X-231, that's, that's Westinghouse based. And one's a program that's through the Army Epidemiological Board that's actually out of the University of Chicago. And um, what's really interesting is if you look at um, the Nuremberg Code, which, which comes out in 1947, which is, which is the, the foundation of how we look at human subject testing from a bioethics standpoint, um, the United States is actually doing a lot of human testing during World War II. Um, but that's, that's something that hasn't been really studied a lot in, in, by historians of biomedical medicine. We haven't found a lot of things. I found some stuff. Um, but we get to decide after the war, we set the guidelines at Nuremberg, which are fine because what the Nazis did was, was, was evil by definition. I think what happened to Tuskegee was, was evil by definition if you're, if you're an ethicist. Um, but we, we, the Nordity basically rules for this in, until, it, until 1947. Um, it's surprising. I'm actually going to go getting a bioethics degree next year at John Hopkins on the flag right now. So I'm actually very interested in, in learning more about this. But, um, you'd be surprised you're sort of frightened to know how late it is in the 20th century that some of this stuff becomes, um, becomes canonized and becomes law, actually. It takes a long time for physicians to talk about this. During World War II, um, people just don't conceptualize this as something you have to worry about because it's not illegal and it's not really considered to be immoral per se, but that's, I'm, I'm using some, some couch language here, but during World War II, they could use military test subjects, and they did, and it wasn't, it, it, wouldn't, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't occur to the doctors sort of ask them about it. I mean, they were, they, they Right. There's like zero expectation no, of informed consent. It's, it's not it's something people are not really talking about yet. I mean, it's, it's something. It's not. It's not been formalized yet. It's not something that people are going to have to do during World War II. Um, uh, in Washington, I, I have one quote from. Uh, I'm thinking of. Um, uh, I can't remember. It, it, it comes up at one point in one sentence in one one um, large document that I read, and it's just not something people think about at the time. Um, uh, I wonder if you could pick back up on uh, this, what you were saying about there was a lot of human testing going on that hasn't really been his fleshed out historically yet, that there's a lot more research to get done in that, in that space, in that area. Um, uh, I think there are probably some grad students out there, you know, hearing this and thinking to themselves, oh, maybe, you know, where uh, is this in the National Archives and like which agencies uh, are there any particular people associated with what you're describing or, or things that might not be as conventionally, uh, there's a, a pretty good, uh, uh, historical memory of Tuskegee. Yes. Out Tuskegee is a that, textbook case. Uh, that, that, that has been, that has been able to, uh, uh, you know, instantiate itself kind of within more, uh, conventional kind of social studies curricula and even in sort of public memory, public recollection of the period. Um, there's, of course, other incidents, the uh, very egregious stuff that there's less awareness of. Um, it has been a story. You're suggesting that there's other 
stuff out there that we really don't have well, a good handle to, on. I'm trying to cover most of this in, in, in the book in, in two chapters. The Army Epidemiological Board does a series of studies. I think in about eight different military bases in the United States. I have to, I have to get my map out. But um, the Army and the Navy are very interested um, after the flu pandemic in 1918 to prevent large spread outbreaks in um, in these in these facilities where you have lots of young men. And actually, young men are, are very actually um, infectious or, or are prone to infection at that time. Um, so they, so they, they are, they're very interested in making sure um, that the fleet can go to sea and that no one's going to get sick. So the aerobiology people like at Westinghouse and GE want to study, see if their technologies work. And the, and the military basically wants to make sure nobody gets sick. So they sort of come together and say, well, we have all these recruits. Why don't you study these people? Um, and it was it's, it's striking to me because um, you don't really see an echo of this in Nuremberg because we were the victors in World War II. Um, to the victors go to spoil in lots of different ways. But, but I think my research is going to show that um, while not as egregiously evil as anything was going on at like Auschwitz or something, that, that there were uh, uh, there were like thousands of individuals being part of human testing programs. But because um, the programs are sort of um, sort of ended the Second World War, people move on, it doesn't really get out to be a problem. And Tuskegee um, will go on for 40 years and people don't... I mean, it's interesting if Tuskegee had actually been People knew more about Tuskegee in like 1935 or 1940. I'm not sure they would have responded the same way that they did in 1972. Um, so the way people even are responding in the 40s were like, well, yeah, well, yeah these are, this is part of the war effort. So people have to, you've signed up to serve your country. So this is part of what you've signed up for. So it's, it's very, very interesting, actually. Um, I'm, I'm sort of puzzled by some of the things I've been studying. Um, but, but it's a different mindset. And, um, and um, the physicians just had a different way of looking at human subjects and testing and biomedicine than we do now. It's just a different world. I, I, have, a, I have an article right now in Environmental History about COVID. They asked some of us to, to do like a think piece. And I wrote a think piece about um, Sinclair Lewis's book, Aerosmith, from 1934. Um, and I was intrigued by the fact that there's a human testing section of that at the end where he goes to this island in the Caribbean and he basically attempts to test um, his cure for, for bubonic plague. Um, and it's just a different time, actually. I mean, he's, I mean, if you read Aerosmith, um, it's very interesting how they're conceptualizing things. When, when Sinclair Lewis wrote that book, he originally was going to write a book about a labor leader. And he decided later on to write about a doctor of biomedical research. Because he thought that was, that he thought a biomedical researcher defined the concept of the heroic at that time period. So that, so that I'm really intrigued by that. You always get back to this idea of trying to make the world a better place. And that's, and that's a good thing, but then you get into things like these human testing projects and things go off the rails really quickly. So it's always the technology and the science and the ethics and the culture mixed together, and it tells a very interesting story about what our, what our country was like in, at this time and what we're like now, how we look at things looking back, actually. Americans don't like sort of see the connection. And Susan Reverie's fantastic work on, on Tuskegee and on what happened in Guatemala, I want, to jo- I want to join that so it all seems to be part of one story now. Right. Yeah, I, I th- I'm glad you brought up Guatemala because that is one of those examples. I think that that's that's much less pronounced in you know the the when we have this conversation at all. It's very rarely you know in a in a public space if you see journalism uh, when this comes up in uh, more general readership type settings. I, th- I think what's I think what's problematic though is it's not tend to sort of see these things as disconnected from from culture and that's that's a problem yeah. to me that there, yeah. there's there's a process how you go from, there's a process uh, you go from 
there are varying degrees of, 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 varying of degrees. How, how dark this is, but you go from Auschwitz to Tuskegee to Camp Sampson to Guadalajara. This is all part of the same sort of, of uh, spectrum of activity. And it, well, and it seems to reflect a certain degree of uh, conviction or certitude about who, which people are more disposable than others, kind of, you know what I mean? And so uh, uh, we would seem to be uh, perfectly on this continuum you're describing where they're interconnected. Probably some of these people who are engaging in this work studied in some of the same places were influenced by the same research. Uh, are, are they are, like, are they going to the same conferences in the 1930s yes, and that sort of thing? Uh, are they engaged? Well, in well, a like actually, um, okay. I have, I have a, I'm not sure this will be in the book. I have a picture of um, a group of African-American um, soldiers at, at uh, naval recruits at Camp Sampson. And one of the, one of the ways that they actually try to reduce airborne infection, which actually sort of works is the oil thing. You actually take a, like your barracks, you take your, um, your bedroll and you fill it with oil. And the oil actually catches the dust motes and actually everything settles down and things can't really um, spread. And, and one of the, the job of the African-American recruits at this time was to apply the oil and basically use brooms to basically oil the floors. Um, African-Americans were conceptualized to not even be part of these studies. As far as I know, there were no African-American research subjects because all, all, all of the subjects are basically white. So they weren't even considered to be part of the spectrum at this point for infection. They were sort of so off the grid. I'm not saying they weren't worried about African-Americans being sick, but they weren't even part of the research topic as far as I know. They were just basically people who oiled the floor so they could actually test the white recruits. Um, um, but about, I'm abs- I haven't actually seen anything about and I have a pretty voluminous note to this. I haven't seen anyone talking about racial and pride racial differences, but African-Americans aren't even part of this story. That's how off the map they are to some of these researchers at this point. And actually, Wells actually tests, um, Wells does some research on measles in 1942. And he actually tests some, some middle-class white children in Philadelphia, outside of Philadelphia, in, in, a, in a pretty ritzy suburb, which I find really interesting. And I'm, I'm trying to contrast that with going, what's going on with the military people, but um, yeah, the racial implications here are um, sort of not there, ex- except people are not listed. But um, even the fact that they could test children during World War II is interesting. Um, this, this was a non-military study. So this was conducted by the University of Pennsylvania. There were some problems with this study. Um, but again, like you talked very eloquently about the fact about human subject testing and how, how things are basically with IRBs. That just wasn't part of the process of biomedical research then. It was going to be very soon, but it was just a different mindset. And I'm sure people are... Yeah, it sounds, it sounds too like there's a lot of authority invested in experts to make the right judgment calls kind of without accountability, either to testing subjects themselves or to some kind of like external, you know, uh, uh, stakeholder or... or uh, uh, supervisory body like what we would think of as an irb today i mean who were these people accountable to uh, anybody the people that ran the department of the war department um i mean you don't see um it, it, it's just not part of what they're talking about i mean I, I mean it's not i don't want to condemn these people it just wasn't um i, I think i think like 100 years yeah. from now assuming we still exist as a species people look back at our animal testing the same way we look at human testing now i think people will be like why were you testing guinea pigs or why are we testing rabbits I think it will, people will be confounded by what we're doing that now. I think back then it just wasn't something people, 
Yeah, there it was. It's just a completely different kind of like yes. ethical calculus that they were operating. And I think it's right when you use the term authority. I think um, there's a very interesting question here about authority and about expertise, which is something I'm interested in. Um, and and when, you, when you start to militarize things like authority and expertise, things can get really problematic really fast. Can get really problematic um, really fast. Yeah. What do you do? You get any sense about what the 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 non scientist authorities in this conversation are? You know, in this space, how are they acting? I mean, are they are they pushing? I'm thinking particularly of of uh, military researchers and people who would have been interested. Like, you know, the military obviously assumes a much greater degree of prominence in American society beginning in 1941, and there's a, a a a very strong interconnection that's really only deepened in the years since between the private sector, right? So we think about today like military contractors and aerospace researchers uh, uh, and the like, uh, uh, that huge Pentagon budget. I mean, there's a huge economy that uh, I'm, you're in Northern Virginia. I mean, <laughs> you know, right? I mean, that's that's a huge part of the the regional economy here in the Washington area. This is sort of like I think uh, when the I, I used to term academic military industrial complex. They put the academic in there because it's actually part of the of the part. So just military industrial, it's academic military industrial complex. Um, this is sort of where things things sort of start there in World War One in our country, but we're only in the war for like less than a, for a year. During this time period, you start to see the foundations and that's why that's why i have the chapter about the militarization of aerobiology is similar to like meteorology oceanography you start to see a different way of doing science and people in some ways are, are when, the, when the military or the government and, and i sometimes use those terms interchangeably throws a lot of money at a research topic that changes the evolution of the trajectory of how, how things work out um and i think we're, and i think if, it's funny when you talk to students now students have a very Students are often sort of, sort of surprised to find out how science was conducted in the 20s and 30s because it's very different than it's conducted now. Because back then it wasn't like all government research and all the government money. The military was actually very small at that point. The military becomes gigantic during World War II and keeps getting bigger during the Cold War. And, and, mili- and science actually and technology, for better or worse, often worse, actually becomes part of that, of that culture. Um, but this is one that changes, actually. And that's why I think that aerobiology is an interesting case study as, as part of how one can militarize public health. Because these people are all trying to make the world a better place, except for the bioweapons guys. Um, and even, I guess, they're theoretically trying to make the world a better place by preventing the spread of fascism. But I don't really give them um, – I'm, I'm not really too impressed with those people, um, per se, from an ethical standpoint. But, but, th- but they're actually founding the, the, the modern scientific enterprise we see now. And I think that's why aerobiology is something people will think about is if you bring in Westinghouse and Charles Lindbergh and all these people, you see how all, there's multiple parts to how you basically have to conduct this research. And, and things are, if World War II doesn't happen, um, obviously this would be different, but I, but I, but people were, were having trouble making progress. Um, and I think they would have made less progress without the human subject research stuff. And it takes them another 30 years to, to do some other things. Um, but it's just a different world back then. I mean, you're talking about like, Philip Ross book. I mean, it's, it's, it's a different, it, that's an interesting book to read because things could have gone very differently. And it's, right now the country's on a precipice too. So things can always go differently. Pro, by pro, and by progress, you mean, um, it, 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 advance of the discipline itself of aerobiology of kind of, you know, control over these pathogens, understanding them, the ability. I'm very interested in narratives them. of control. Um, because control is very slippery as a technological idea. And I, I did, but then it, it 
I'm always, I'm always, when I'm writing this, I'm always sort of torn between this idea of control and optimism and unintended consequences. I always, those are the three, I think, sub themes of, of my work in, my, in this book is how these three ideas keep evolving and interchanging and they're basically morphing together. Um, and, and these people do want to make the world a better place. And I think eventually they do make the world a better place. Um, but if you take in things like X231, um, the price that was paid is, 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 is problematic, actually. Yes, yes. Is vast, yeah. Was there any attempt to, to, to apologize to the uh, people who were... Not, not that I've seen... Uh, Used in this way, or 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 attempt to 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 get toward some kind of. I mean, no one, no one was really injured as far as I, basically the the UV light didn't actually really affect people. No one was, as far as I know, nobody was actually. Um, the, the Wells research. I'm still writing the chapter on Wells in Philadelphia. In Philadelphia, that's actually pretty complicated. But the military research probably doesn't result in any deaths. Um, but the idea that people would actually just be part of a research subject part of a research project without their consent is, is, is very eye-opening to us. Um, I did find a statement once, Vannevar Bush and James Conant pretty much ran military research in the United States during World War II. And I got to find this in my notes, but there, there's... Bush at one point talks about whether there could be some problems after the war with respect to this research project. And he just sort of, he just sort of like passes over it, like, well, no. I mean, just gonna, it's not considered to be a problem. Um, but they think about it. I mean, it's not something that people spend a lot of time worrying about. People are worrying about whether they can solve the problem, not what's going to happen. Yeah, well, and I, I think we we see that very much in the yes, yes. Uh, in Los Alamos story and yes. the the Oppenheimer story, which yes. is to say that there's. Uh, there's a need to expedite this technology and they're aware that there are all kinds of, uh, seems like they were more aware perhaps of, of, of the ethical implications of, of, of what was going on or the, the, the potential for real disaster to be unleashed by, uh, the development of these weapons as opposed to, uh, seems like there, there, there's a bit less, of a restraint going on in the in the space that you're describing, but uh, it's absolutely there. I think the sense that well, you know, the most unethical thing we could possibly do in this moment is not do what we must to defeat these enemies. It's not they have a wartime emergency. I'm also I'm halfway through a book on World War One. I'm writing the environmental history of World War One, and it's interesting in this country because I think America is a reactive country when it comes to like scientific problems. I think like we react. Two things, you know, like I think the way we're reacting or not reacting to the COVID is a useful example to that. But um, Americans, when you have when you ring the wartime emergency bell, people just react in a very different way. Um, and you can do things like human experimentation. You can spend billions of dollars on things. You can do all sorts of things. It's not what happens during normal normal life. But um, I, I, when I look at the, in the book, when you're looking at the 30s and the 40s, you, you see this very interesting dichotomy between peacetime research and wartime research. And they're the exact same people. Um, most of the, all these are university professors, some of whom enter the service, some of whom just basically are working under military contracts. Um, but they're doing this same research, but they have access to other things because of the government. Um, one of the things I tell my children, children, I tell, I tell my students is um, this concept of trust. You've talked a lot about this sort of underlying interest like kind of between, between optimism and, and control. Um, People back then really trusted the government. 
I mean, if you think about the, about Los Alamos, I mean, thousands of people worked at Los Alamos and worked at, at, at uh, Oak Ridge and worked at uh, worked in Washington State, and nobody people like went to work and they were told not to talk about this project, even though it was vastly compartmentalized. And people didn't talk about that, um, and students today just find that really interesting that people wouldn't like they said, okay, I mean. It's obviously now whether or not you trust the government, whatever that may or may not mean, is, is a loaded sentence. But but people did really trust the government back then. Well, people, political scientists in particular, I, I feel like historians are doing more of this now. But political scientists in particular have been working with this concept of social trust for for some time now, and uh, kind of doing work that enables us to understand how much that shapes you know, what policymakers are allowed to do and how effective they are doing it. Just the, the simple baseline uh, reality of do people trust one another, even people they don't know, to, to, to basically do the right thing in most situations. And uh, I think you're, you're we, we don't have the kind of data we have now to measure that like in the present from you know going back to the 1930s but uh it does seem that having worked in that period quite a bit myself uh there was much more confidence in in institutions i mean it's it's a period of mm -hmm. tremendous institution building mm -hmm. um uh and uh this is a this was such a good Q and A. Um, and well, people, and a I think interview. people like to talk about. Um, I, I really like the question, right? You think about the '30s. People think about like building like the Hoover Dam or something, or people think about the New Deal. And, and I think that um, students under I'm not talking about so undergrads, but I mean like I think sometimes they think people were naive back then, and I'm not sure whether that's true or not. But people thought that government could work for good. And FDR, like they built all these things to sort of save the nation from that or before the nation went to the revolution or something, but people like built roads and built dams and did things. And it was interesting. And there was like, you talked about airplanes and things, these, you know, the building of airports and the, all these large structures, which also can get, there's a fascist aspect to building large structures. It can be problematic too. Um, but people just had a different view of the world then. And I've actually sometimes tried to get my, my head into a 1930s or 1940s space to understand what my, what my people are doing actually. Yeah. I, I think, I think the, the, the sense you get, I mean, the 19th century, we talk about internal improvements, right? You know, um, in the 20th century, stop using that language, but uh, it just seemed like there's a uh, uh, an impetus that's unleashed in in that Depression era, kind of World War II era moment, where uh, an enormous amount of of state power and state resources are being leveraged and invested in the creation of of infrastructure to support things like disease monitoring and aerobiological research. And I think probably, and I, and I think this, this interview has borne that out. Um, it's a lot more work to be done in this area. I hope, <laughs> you know, that the next generation people who come along down the pike after us, uh, choose to pick it up. Cause it, it, it just based on what you're telling me, I mean, I have, I could ask you questions for another three hours, but That's we, uh, we've already gone past the allotted you, time. You asked fantastic questions, by the way. It's been lots um, of fun. So, um. oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, this was a great talk and uh, a great, you, you taught me a lot today, which is always what I look for. William Fitzgerald. And that's a wrap. Thank you again for joining us this time and come back for the next one when Professor Ken Marcus will invite us to consider some difficult stories about the interconnections between 
public health, civil rights, and the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. We'll catch you then.